Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, we got a hell of a good show today. There is a ton of news. Our guest is Liz Sly. You'll hear her at the end of the show. She's the Washington Post Beirut bureau chief. And I talked to her today about the the massive explosion that rocked the city last week, efforts to rebuild, uh, and the political and economic crisis that Lebanon was dealing with before the 2,700 pounds of ammonium nitrate ever went off. So great conversation. Uh, And Ben, I'm just reminded talking to her that like, Foreign correspondents in a lot of places put their lives on the line to yeah. do their jobs, and we should be grateful to them and not call them fake news, maybe? Yes, they are national and international treasures, and they're not enough of them because of media consolidation. So we, we're really lucky to have people like Liz Sly out there. Yeah, we really are. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we're going to cover a ton of news, just the two of us. First is the big news. Everybody's talking about Senator Kamala Harris has been chosen as Joe Biden's running mate. So we're going to talk about what we know about her and her foreign policy views. Uh, Then we're going to talk about growing concern about foreign election interference, the disputed election and crackdown in Belarus that we previewed last week. We're talking about how the press is under attack in Hong Kong, Trump's growing war against Chinese tech companies, allegations that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman tried to have another enemy executed uh, abroad, this time in Canada. Talk about an oil spill in Mauritius, protests in Zimbabwe, eruptions in Indonesia. Putin says he made a vaccine. Ben, I'm uh, I'm going to pump the brakes on that one before I take yeah, it. But yeah, We'll see. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> a little more uh, of our our ongoing uh, running series. Ambassadors gone wild, and then finally Bill Belichick. Uh, but first, Ben, before we get to the big VP news, we have an even bigger news, which is that Missing America episode one is out. It is live. It is in the world. It is fantastic. I listened this morning. Congratulations. How are you feeling? I feel, you know, it's very weird to work on something really for a couple of years and then very intensively for a bunch of months. And and then suddenly like people have access to it. Yeah. And but I'm really excited. The audience that I most want to listen to this podcast are the worldos because you guys have kind of been on this journey with us anyway. And, and I think, you know, we go deep. Episode one, you'll hear from Susan Rice, Samantha Power, Chris Murphy. You'll also hear from incredible international voices like David Lammy, Kevin Rudd. You'll hear from young activists like Zarlash Halamzai, who's been on the show. Uh, and you'll hear the COVID Ebola response compared. You'll hear about why Black Lives Matter is relevant to our role in the world. Uh, you'll hear what other people around the world are thinking and watching our election. It kind of sets up the whole show. So I really hope people check it out. It's so good. I love the first episode. I, I listened to all the episodes. I love all the episodes. Subscribe to Missing America wherever you get your pods. You will love it. It's such a good companion piece to this show. Because look, it was the before times when Ben could really take you to all these other countries, sit down with people, learn from activists, learn about ourselves in the process. It is incredible. So subscribe to Missing America. Okay, let's get to the news. Joe Biden picked a running mate. This is an exciting day. K-Hive Assemble, Tommy. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, look, we obviously loved Susan, but look, Kamala Harris, you know, I mean, there's a reason why there's been 
like an excitement around her for a long time, like dating back to, you know, her time as attorney general in California. And, and, uh, you know, it's gonna be really fun to watch her, you know, take her place on the national stage. Yeah, and hopefully kick the shit out of Mike Pence at a debate. So let's talk about a little bit of what we know from um, about her foreign policy record, because that's what we do here. We're worldos, we're geeks, we love this stuff. Uh, I stole a lot of this from the Council on Foreign Relations. So it kind of ticked through a bunch of just things she's done, her record. So on China, Ben, she sort of made standard comments on trade. Uh, she opposed the Trump trade war. She wants to cooperate with China on climate change and has called out their human rights record. So those are all things we like. Uh, you will like this, I think, in particular, Ben. You know, I think all the 2020 candidates had really aggressive climate change proposals. And Kamala has talked about centering climate, you know, putting it at the center of her diplomacy. So I imagine you think that that's like maybe the most important thing. Yeah, I think the two things that jump out to me about Kamala's record that are really relevant to what we've talked a lot about, one is climate and the recognition that that's not just a domestic issue, that that should be the centerpiece of American foreign policy, uh, really the central pillar. Um, and then also, you know, she's been really good on on democracy issues here in America, right, which, as we've talked about, is is totally inseparable from the need for the United States to reclaim its moral authority in the world. So I think also, frankly, just globally, having a young, dynamic, charismatic black woman, uh, you know, a multi-ethnic background um, who is going to destroy Mike Pence in debates and um, represents in many ways the future of the Democratic Party, like that's going to be a great asset to have around the world, you know, that Joe Biden's described himself as as a bridge of sorts to the next generation and to the increasingly diverse America that's coming. And the extent to which Kamala Harris uh, represents that, I think, will be very powerful in terms of her capacity to deliver a message on the world stage. Yeah, totally agree. A couple other things that jumped out of me. She voted against reauthorizing the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA. Uh, when it comes to other counterterrorism areas, she has not ruled out using drones, but has called for more transparency. Um, she hammered Trump for leaving the Iran deal and says she'd rejoin it, which makes both of us very happy. She will end support for the Saudi civil war in Yemen. Very good. Again, on North Korea, she said she would consider sanctions relief if North Korea takes verifiable steps to denuclearize. But she also has wrote a letter to Trump saying he lacks the legal authority to carry out a preemptive strike on North Korea both ways, that's good. Uh, she's opposed military intervention in Venezuela, but called for granting temporary protected status for Venezuelan migrants in the US who want to stick around and stay here and be protected and not get deported to someplace uh, where they might be hurt, imprisoned, what have you. So a lot of good things uh, in terms of her foreign policy record. Obviously, you know, Joe Biden's uh, record will will be leading the U.S. foreign policy, but she is the last person in the room uh, advising him, pushing him on issues. And, and I'm sure taking on her own basket of foreign policy issues to lead. Like, that's just some exciting stuff. Yeah, no, and, you know, in many ways, she's been at, at the mainstream of where the party's uh, been evolving on these issues in a very good way, right? So the 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 approach to the Saudi war in Yemen, uh, the approach to the Iran deal, you know, like she's, uh, if you take her tenacity and her, her very big brain uh, and apply it to, a post 9-11 American foreign policy that is rooted in winding down these wars, prioritizing diplomacy, focusing on issues around the rule of law and corruption in the U.S. and around the world. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot to work with there in terms of what she could bring to the table um, as a partner for Joe Biden. And again, I, I, I think it's really if you look at some of Kamala's 
more outstanding moments uh, in her time in the Senate, you know, uh, they, they have been focused on these issues around the rule of law, mm-hmm. which, again, I think are profoundly foreign policy issues, <laughs> you know, like yeah. like the, 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 the interrogation that she did of Bill Barr is the exact kind of scrutiny that needs to be applied to people undermining the rule of law around the world. So I see her as a potentially exciting figure in bridging what needs to happen in terms of domestic reform to our own democracy and the functioning of the rule of law and inclusivity and equality in this country and and what we're standing for in other countries. And I think she could be a very forceful advocate um, for those things. Yes, uh, but first they have to win. uh, So let's talk about something that might make that harder, uh, election interference. So on Friday, August 7th, the Director of National Intelligence's office released a statement about election interference attempts uh, on the 2020 election. It mentioned, quote, ongoing and potential activity, which I found to be weird phrasing that could mean anything, Ben, from three countries, China, Russia, and Iran. The statement said China wants Trump to lose, but provides no specifics besides like public PR propaganda statements from them. Uh, it said Russia is doing things to, quote, primarily denigrate former Vice President Joe Biden and the establishment, nice of them to incorporate some of Trump's uh, campaign rhetoric there by calling Joe the establishment. It doesn't say that Russia wants Trump to win or anything about the many levels of interference uh, and deeper hacking that we saw in 2016 that we should probably assume is going on. Lastly, the DNI statement claims that Iran wants to undermine democratic institutions, uh, undermine Trump and divide the US in the wake of the election or leading up to the election. Um, Right around the release of that statement, the New York Times Magazine released a long piece by Robert Draper about how Trump has just fully politicized the intelligence community. It included uh, anecdotes about specific instances of where intelligence uh, around election interference, including in an NIE, this like highly, highly vetted, important consensus intelligence product that the intelligence community puts together. Um, That document was changed from saying the Russians want Trump to win to something much more watered down. We talked a little bit about this on, on Pod Save America Monday, Ben, but I think it's so important that I really wanted to hammer it home with you. What did you make of this, this DNI statement kind of you know, spreading the election interference love around to to three different countries, some pro-Joe, some pro-Trump, and this like general growing concern on Capitol Hill about election interference and, and maybe that we are not being told enough. Yeah, I was really worried about this statement. <laughs> um, I did not see it at all as a positive uh, step here. Uh, and I'll just unpack why. I mean, as the Draper article uh, attested, and as we've talked about here, you know, Rick Grinnell and and years of Trump, they basically cleaned house at the DNI, right? And now you've got this kind of hack in there. Um, and here's what they're clearly setting up, right? They 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 are acknowledging the Russia effort, but they're trying to create a both sides narrative around it. You know, like which is what they always try to do in politics. Well, well, Russia might be helping Trump, but maybe China or Iran are, are, are helping Biden. First of all, let's unpack this. These are very different things. Russia, if it's like 2016, and it's probably worse, is likely to be engaged in a systematic, multifaceted effort to elect Donald Trump president of the United States again, right? And they're increasing concerns that that could even include hacking election infrastructure. The Chinese regularly engage in anti-U.S. propaganda and disinformation. Like that, this does not sound or feel to me like that the Chinese are trying to help Joe Biden win. In fact, a lot of the reporting we've seen is that they would like Donald Trump to win because China's been cleaning up around the world given the collapse of American influence. And so, equating attacks from China or Iran on kind of U.S. policy with 
supporting Joe Biden is what this feels like. And, yeah. and, and, and an equivalency drawn to what Russia is doing, that's just not true. Yep. And what worries me about this is, one, it obscures just how dangerous what the Russians are likely doing is. And two, it's also not hard to see a scenario in which Joe Biden wins and in their zeal to you know, get even and to launch their investigations, they will claim, well, the Chinese helped, you know, Joe Biden get elected. And, you know, we'll have what what they said Barack Obama did and he didn't do with his Obama, their Obamagate conspiracy theory, where they claim that Obama somehow used a transition to undermine the incoming administration. Like they may very well do that. You know? yeah. So I, I see them setting up a narrative to to enable the Russian interference and then to weaponize what I think is a, a huge exaggeration, if not total misrepresentation of what China is doing to attack Joe Biden. And the other piece of this, Ben, is like, it, it seems like the, the Senate itself might be enabling Russian interference, right? So we have Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who is desperate to become fully what Vladimir Lenin once called a useful idiot, meaning someone who will peddle uh, Russian propaganda in the West. So Johnson is using his committee, his chairmanship, to run an investigation into Biden's family based off these documents that he was given by the, the former, the son of a former KGB officer, right? And he is just like happily regurgitating ridiculous debunked lies about Burisma and Hunter Biden and all the shit we learned about during impeachment because he thinks it will get Trump elected. When even Lindsey Graham said he doesn't think this information is credible. It's driving me crazy. So like my last question, if you've been, you know, some of these senators are coming out and saying we were just briefed on this information, but we can't tell you because it's classified. You know, we talked about this on Monday, how Mike Gravel in, in the early 70s read the Pentagon papers into the into the congressional record. Like, do you think some of these guys should go down to the floor and start just talking about this intelligence? Like how how do we figure out when it's appropriate to do that even? Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, I like Mark Warner. But he made a mistake. Um, he's the ranking member on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and he kind of signed this bipartisan statement that went along with what the DNI had said. And notably, Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi then put out a statement saying they were troubled by this framing, the equivalency being drawn between what Russia's doing and and what other countries are doing. Uh, I, I I don't think in in a kind of zeal for bipartisanship here, we should allow the Republicans to somehow, again, both sides of this. That's the first yeah. thing. And the second thing is, you know, a bunch of senators and Dick Blumenthal has you know, been front and center on this, keep coming out and saying how troubled they are, how dangerous this is, how they hope that more information is shared. The Trump administration and the Trump hack at DNI, they're not going to put this information out, right? So either you're going to have to figure out a way to get it out or it's not going to get out. And, and there should be ways to get it out, by the way. I mean, the Democrats control the House Intelligence Committee, or like you said, you can read some of this in the congressional record. But if, if there really is stuff that's that scary, I think the public has a right to know these things before the election, right? Yes. And, and frankly, I also don't think that there's huge sources and methods concerns here. It's not like the Russians aren't aware that we're monitoring election interference here. You know, right. They're not going to be shocked to learn that the, the intelligence community has uncovered some things here. Uh, and, you know, if you connect it to the Draper story, the Draper story said that literally national intelligence estimates about election interference were changed at the request of political appointees in the Trump administration. That is as manipulating of intelligence as it gets. And so if this information is in the government and it's relevant to, to Americans before they vote, we should know it. 
Yeah, yeah. That's the point of having intelligence, to be able to warn us in, in cases like this. <sighs> okay, uh, let's talk about uh, Belarus, because last week we previewed what was then an upcoming presidential election in Belarus. And again, if folks don't know where Belarus is, uh, imagine a map. Belarus borders Russia on the east. It's, it's just north of Ukraine. So there was some hope uh, last week that voters in Belarus could finally depose their leader, who is often referred to as Europe's longest serving dictator. But when that election happened on August 9th, sadly, those hopes were dashed. So here's the backstory. Um, Alexander Lukashenko has led Belarus for 26 years. He stayed in power by rigging elections and taking huge loans from Russia that kept the economy afloat but indebted them to the Russians. This year, Lukashenko faced a surprisingly strong challenge from Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, in part because Lukashenko's uh, disastrous handling of the coronavirus. So Svetlana Tikhonovskaya is a 37-year-old with no political experience, and she decided to run after her husband, who's an activist, blogger, YouTuber, uh, was arrested just days after he announced his candidacy. Um, it's not totally clear to me why Lukashenko's goons allowed Svetlana to qualify to run, right? They could have they could have bounced her too. But it turned out to be a mistake because she was turning out some of the biggest crowds observers had seen in decades, despite like it being an incredibly sexist uh, country, despite massive voter suppression efforts. And many observers believe that she won the election. But on Monday, Belarus's election authorities announced that Lukashenko had won 80% of the vote, and Svetlana got 10%. And so those figures are almost certainly preposterous. Uh, and they enraged citizens who took to the streets to protest. A lot of those protesters were met with a, a brutal crackdown uh, by police. Uh, ben, uh, it was upsetting to me that it was so bad at times that it looked like Portland uh, or Seattle or other U.S. cities where the cops were beating the shit out of people. Um State-run news reported that like 3,000 people were arrested. Uh, so Svetlana apparently like issued a formal complaint to the election authorities. Then she disappeared for a while. I guess her team didn't know where she was until she reemerged in Lithuania. So Western leaders, including the U.S., have put out statements expressing concern about irregularities and the violence. Uh, autocrats like Xi Jinping uh, sent his congrats. The Russians blamed the West for the protests, which they always do. So, Ben, I don't want to be defeatist. Um, it does feel like the opposition has a uphill climb here. What do you think comes next? Does the EU weigh in? Is there a chance an international body could pressure the right people to even things out? Or, or is this just the official death of, of any kind of election or democracy, uh, in quotes, in Belarus? Yeah, I mean, you know, and to be clear, there already wasn't really much of democracy in, in yeah, Belarus. Yeah. Lukashenko has been dictatorial. And, and look, this is such utter bullshit. I mean, to come out and say you won 80%. 80%. It just, it's just like confer when when at the same time we're seeing the biggest crowds that have ever been seen on the streets in Minsk for days against Lukashenko, uh, you know, is it, just kind of a an FU to the, the people of the country from their president, right? Um, I, I would like to see, I mean, in a normal world, the U.S. and the EU together could apply a lot of pressure here. Um, I don't think the U.S. is going to do it. I'd like to see the EU be more outspoken. They're, they they kind of have a, a Susan Collins vibe to their statements. You know, they're, they're deeply troubled. <laughs> yeah, they're um, so sad. But look, the bottom line here is like this guy is on borrowed time. Like the people of this country are clearly sick of his kind of corrupt autocratic rule here. And he may be like just getting through this one, but... I, th these protests are going to come back and, you know, the tactics they're using in the streets, you know, are horrific, but are not going to do anything to, to improve his standing with his people. Right. And so mm. I, I do think that 
finding ways to, to, to provide support to civil society and to the, the independent voices that are being raised in Belarus from the U.S., from Europe, to, to lift them up, to spotlight them, while also calling out the behavior of the regime in that country is going to be important, not just right now, but this is going to keep going. And so if Joe Biden's elected, like he'll have an opportunity, I think, to speak out forcefully on this and to try to organize the world's democracies to give more support to independent political movements and civil society in places like Belarus. And to yeah. be unabashed about doing it, you know? I mean, sometimes in the Obama administration, particularly in the heels of the Iraq war, we were a bit reticent, you know, to, to, to intervene essentially in the politics of other countries. You know what? Like Vladimir Putin has intervened in our politics. You know, uh, the far right is intervening in politics around the world. And, and I think what we need is a much more assertive tone uh, and, and posture on these types of movements because these people are right. And so there are other things that we can do, like exposing this guy's corruption. I'm sure that the U.S. can track the illicit financial flows yep. that support goons like Lukashenko. Let's publicize that. Let's let the world see how rich this guy is and, and how did he get that rich being a basically, uh, you know, the dictator of his country for the last 25 years. So I think there's a bunch of stuff that can be done. It's not going to remedy the immediate challenge, but it's going to make sure that the next time this happens, um, there's a greater chance of success for the opposition. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Let's talk about another great power trying to crush a protest movement, uh, this time in Hong Kong. So the Chinese government continues to use Hong Kong's new national security law to just squeeze Hong Kong's democracy. The latest example is the arrest Monday of Jimmy Lai, who is one of Hong Kong's most prominent democracy activists. He's been called a media mogul. Uh, he founded the Apple Daily newspaper, which is a staunchly pro-democracy newspaper. The charges against Lai, it's, it's collusion with foreign forces, whatever the hell that means. So they sent 200 cops to his, the, the office, the Apple Daily office. They were searching it. They also arrested uh, additional members of the Apple Daily's staff. They arrested Lai's two sons who do not work at the paper. They arrested executives at another one of Lai's media companies. Um, Jimmy Lai is well known by senior officials in Washington. He's met with Pelosi, he's met with Pompeo. On Sunday, Mike Pompeo released a statement with the foreign ministers of Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the UK, criticizing Hong Kong's government for disqualifying pro-democracy candidates uh, from the upcoming legislative elections. 
and like generally criticizing their use of the new national security law. Uh, late last week, the Trump administration imposed sanctions on Carrie Lam, Hong Kong's chief executive, and 10 other officials in Hong Kong and China for suppressing pro-democracy activists. In return, China sanctioned a bunch of Americans, including Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. So those are kind of things you would want the US doing, Ben, but per usual, Trump made it clear that he doesn't actually care about democracy or freedom in Hong Kong. When he was asked about these arrests today, he rambled about how Hong Kong has been making a lot of money uh, and now the U.S. stock market is going to make more money. It was like truly bizarre, morally bankrupt stuff that just shows he doesn't give a shit about democracy in Hong Kong. And look, frankly, we've known that for a while because he never talks about this stuff. He leaves it to Pompeo to, to beat his chest futilely. But like, let's pause there, Ben. I was trying to think of like an equivalent person in the U.S. maybe getting arrested. I don't know if it's Jeff Bezos, Ted Turner, someone like that. But this seems like a clear attempt to silence and intimidate the press in Hong Kong. Um, how big a deal do you think this is in terms of their their slide into just becoming mainland China? And what do you think the U.S. should do in response? So this is an enormous deal. And and and, and I'll break it down based on, on my experience. When I was in Hong Kong, I talked to people a lot about the media. And what they told me is that the, the pro-government forces, either directly the government of the Chinese Communist Party or often kind of Chinese tycoons associated with the government have bought up all of the media except Apple Daily, except Jimmy Lai's properties. And, and, and I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, for instance, if you live in a big housing project, there is literally a government newspaper delivered to your door every day. <laughs> like you don't wow. have a choice. Like you just get it, right? And, yeah. and there's this kind of force feeding of a propaganda line that is friendly to Beijing that dominates the Hong Kong media space. Then there was another independent paper, the South China Morning Post, which is an iconic paper in that part of the world. It's an English language daily. This is the the, the daily that's delivered to like every hotel room and, you know, is, is generally services the expat community there. I, all I can hear is when he said, this is the daily. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, I don't have the same voice, unfortunately. But um, that was bought by Alibaba, right? Which is oh, the, wow. uh, the, the basically the Chinese Amazon. Yep. They have no reason to buy it. You know, like it's not part of their business model to buy it. No. And when they bought it, they said the reason they were buying it is because they thought they wanted to correct misperceptions about China, right? So, you, you know, tells you a lot about the editorial Got line it. that they were shifting towards. And so the only source of independent news was Apple Daily. So to your question of who is it like, it's actually like arresting everybody, <laughs> the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, because this is it. If they get rid of Apple Daily and Jimmy Lai's media conglomerate, there is no independent media anymore that they can actually reach people. So this is a huge deal. It's not just shutting down one newspaper. It's like the last island of information that can reach people um, other than social media platforms, which might be next. Mm -hmm. um, and so in terms of what the, the U.S. should do, I mean, look, I, I've said time and again, we need to set a better example. But in addition to that, like just finding ways to, to lift up Hong Kong voices and, and to, to, to lift up journalism and, and frankly, to, 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 to make sure that we're doing whatever we can to try to get information that is credible to, to people in Hong Kong, yeah. right? Whether that's through our own broadcasting or whether that's through, again, making trying to make sure that they're not able to to crack down on social media platforms needs to be a part of this. And and look, the the people that need to to do more here are also the the multinational companies in Hong Kong, right? You know, like there's a ton of international business and banks and expats 
I, I think that they want to be able to get news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want to be able to get uncensored information. And like the Chinese are going to just snuff all that out. I, I think real thought has to be given to like, again, reassessing Hong Kong having this special economic status where they're treated differently than mainland China. Yeah, this is no longer a slippery slope. This is a, just a, a sheet of ice and everyone's flying downhill into just becoming mainland yeah. China. I'd love to ask you questions at the end of these long uh, descriptions of what's going on. Like, Ben, how do you solve the hardest, most intractable problem uh, facing politics yeah. today? But, you know, there we are. Pod save the world for you. Um, but you mentioned Alibaba. So let's talk about Trump's fight against some other Chinese uh, technology companies because they, they're escalating. So last week, uh, in the couple weeks prior, we were talking about Trump fighting with TikTok. Now they've expanded that to include WeChat. Um, and so what happened was on Thursday, Trump signed two executive orders that bar U.S. companies or persons from making transactions with the parent companies of TikTok and WeChat for 45 days. So I talked about the TikTok piece a few times, but the WeChat part is new. And I would argue a bigger deal because for those who aren't familiar WeChat is a Chinese messaging and like mobile payment app that is over a billion users. So CNN's reporting on this described it as Facebook, LinkedIn, Uber, Instagram, all rolled into one. I'd add the cash app into there. Um, Use it for everything in China, right? You can use WeChat to to hail a car, uh, order lunch, pay for lunch, call your friend to meet you there. So um, it is also like the primary way that anyone outside of China stays in touch with friends and family in the mainland. WeChat is owned by a Chinese company called Tencent, uh, which is heavily invested in another bunch of American companies, some gaming companies, some brands. So there's a couple of pieces of this, I think. Like one is the, the, the second and third order impact of these EOs. So here's an example. The Verge wrote this interesting piece about how this decision could have a massive impact on Apple's business in China. Because if Apple has to remove WeChat from their app store, or they can't support payments through WeChat, it basically makes an iPhone useless in China. And Apple made $44 billion in China last year. So that's a big hit. That's like 15% of their revenue. Uh, But more broadly, like, like it's hard to figure out the exact details and implications of these EOs because they're poorly written. There's time to adjust them. They're like, they're basically kind of ad hoc saying, oh, that's not included. That is. But I guess my question to you, Ben, is like, what is the point? What is the value of basically cutting off all communication with Chinese citizens from the West, from other companies. Like I understand the privacy risks from TikTok. I get the data sharing concerns. I, I am in favor of sanctioning Chinese leaders involved in crackdowns in Hong Kong. But this seems like it's just going to break ties between you know Chinese expats in the U.S. and their families. And I, I don't get it. Yeah, no, it's it's how Chinese foreign students and pe- people visiting and living in the U.S. communicate back home. I think more broadly, the, the concern is this, like the Trump administration has talked a lot about decoupling, right? This is a word you hear again and again. Mm-hmm. And what that basically means in the technology space is there are going to be essentially two walled off technology ecosystems in the world. There'll be Chinese tech and like U.S. slash Western tech, you know, and we're going to decouple. So we're going to like, yeah, yeah. The, the, right now, this, some of this is intermingled and they're, they're Western countries that use Huawei and other Chinese technology. And then inside the Chinese market, you know, Apple, Microsoft and others have been very active. And it's incredibly disruptive to just say, we're just cutting this all off. You know, it, it, you know it, it's disruptive to US businesses. It's disruptive to Chinese people abroad. It's disruptive to to countries that are using Huawei that are in, uh, in in the democratic world here. And what concerns me is that 
no thought has been given to this. Like, yes, like there are issues that need to be addressed. There are protections, you know, that need to be put in place for privacy or cybersecurity concerns. But like just cutting these cords without thinking it through and without thinking about the unintended consequences of what you're doing, I, I think invites a lot of the negative repercussions and and doesn't really articulate clearly what is gained mm-hmm. by essentially creating a, a technology cold war. Yeah. You know, we and here's the thing, we may end up there, like that may be where the world is evolving towards, but they're careening over a cliff towards it without thinking it through. So I think this is just it's just premature. Like there there have to be ways to try to explore whether there are less drastic and draconian measures to take here that address some of these concerns without just kind of like ripping the band-aid off and building a literally building a wall. Yeah. Just the idea that these guys like four years in are still just slapping up EOs that are so poorly written and yeah. confusing and stuff full of commas, like nobody knows how to interpret them. It's like trillion dollar industries are, are at the mercy of these executive orders yeah. written by like Stephen Miller's fucking assistant who who hates the Chinese. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. And if you're saying, I mean, you have to like consider like, how are you, what is the goal? You yeah. know, like every policy, you know, there's a, there's a nerdy thing in foreign policy, right? Like means and ends, right? But yep. like, what, what is, what are the end that you're trying to achieve and then figure out what the means are to get there? And the Trump people only seem to think about the means. Like, I, I mean, I guess the end is to be like tough on China, yeah. but like re-election to what to what end to to achieve what? Because you're not going to like put China out of business. You're not going to, if anything, you're going to ensure Chinese domination of a whole swath of the world where Chinese technology is predominant. Um, and the people behind that, you know, virtual iron curtain are not going to have access to Western platforms that you're yanking back out of your concerns. And, you know, so I, I just, I, I think that, again, they see every problem as a nail. And so they just pull out the hammer, but they don't think through like what they're actually trying to achieve and what effects this is going to happen, have in the real world. Yeah. P.S. We all know that uh, Trump asked the Chinese for help in re-election because John Bolton told us. So, you know, we'll just gloss over that, I guess. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about another butte, our friends in Saudi Arabia, Ben. So, Last week, uh, a former top Saudi intelligence official named Saad al-Jabri accused Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of targeting him for assassination and taking al-Jabri's kids who were living in Saudi Arabia hostage. These details were part of a lawsuit that was filed in Washington, D.C. Al-Jabri says that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, we'll call him, wants him dead because Al-Jabri knows MBS's secrets, basically. Al-Jabri has close relationships with U.S. intelligence officials, uh, and he thinks that MBS is worried he could basically screw up his relationship with the president. So the suit alleges that in October of 2018, which was just days after the Saudis murdered Washington Post columnist uh, Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey, uh, MBS dispatched a team of hitmen to Toronto, Canada to kill al-Jabri. Those guys luckily didn't get past Canadian customs officials. I guess they lied about being together, and then there was a photo clearly showing them together. It also probably didn't help that they were carrying tools you could use to dismember a body. I guess that might be a tell. Uh, the Washington Post reported that 
Al-Jabri is credited with overseeing informants who penetrated the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula network of AQAP in 2010 and exposed a very serious plot to send bombs hidden in printer cartridges to the U.S. Uh, ben, we were both at the White House at the time, and like that was yeah. that was some serious, serious, scary, scary shit. shit. Al-Jabri was a close aide yeah. to Prince Mohammed bin Nayef. Uh, MBN, as he's known, was deposed by Mohammed bin Salman, uh, and so it's part of that big split in the Saudi family. Ben, it's worth just pointing out, like, there's not a lot of evidence to back up these claims. I guess, you know, if, if the Canadians have video of these dudes trying to get in the country with, like, bone saws, that would be useful. But, you know, the Saudis basically now have a couple weeks to respond to this suit. MBS will likely lobby the U.S. hard to get him immunity in the case and have it dismissed. I assume Al Jabri's goal here is is to bring public attention to his plight and maybe get some safety that way. We can't confirm this story, but there's been lots of reporting about Saudi efforts to silence critics abroad. The New Yorker had a long piece in January 2019 about this that described MBS as, quote, working through embassies and back channels to silence critics through blackmail, intimidation, and forced repatriation. That harassment includes like people like Khashoggi and then just private citizens who who he just wants to get back at. So Ben, I don't even know what to say about these guys anymore. Like the only people carrying water for the Saudis and, and MBS are like Trump, Jared, Kushner, and defense contractors who want to sell them weapons to kill Yemeni kids. Um, I just, I have to imagine at this point that if MBS sticks around, like the US-Saudi relationship is going to massively deteriorate post-Trump, or at least I can pray that's the case. Well, yeah. I mean, the first thing that jumps out to me here is that like, if a murderer gets away with murder, even though he's been caught, he's going to do it again. You know, and like, this is what a lot of us said at the time, like the U.S. had information that this guy ordered a hit in a third country against a prominent person, in this case, Jamal Khashoggi, using bone saws to dismember him in the most gruesome way. And Trump knew all this and then embraced, literally embraced MBS. And so, of course, he's doing it again. Like, again, there are consequences to these things. And we don't want to live in a... I mean, I can't believe it. you even have to say that we should not live in a world where countries can assassinate people with impunity in third... Anywhere, for that matter, but in third countries, you know? And, and again, this is a prominent figure. That's MBS trying to send a message that nobody's safe who criticizes me. And that should be chilling to everybody. And by the way, also, like MBS reportedly dispatched agents to the U.S. to harass this guy and his family. So, uh, you know, the, the, the Khashoggi thing, maybe you could argue, OK, that all happened in Turkey. It didn't happen here. They did this here. They, yeah. they, the Saudis were harassing people here. They had people at Twitter, right, you know, as part of their campaigns to kind of monitor people. I mean, this is this is so much more far reaching. And, and yeah, to your point, like if Joe Biden wins, like we, we just it cannot be business as usual. It, like this will be. The to me, the first major litmus test as to whether or not like a, a Biden administration gets just how much the world has changed under Trump. You know, mm -hmm. this is not we can't just say like, well, we're going to we're going to raise human rights concerns. No, this this relationship needs a fundamental rethink here, <laughs> a fundamental reassessment, because we are currently engaged in a war with these people in Yemen. We're currently shipping them tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons while they're doing this stuff. That cannot continue.
Can't continue. Uh, a few other quicker ones. So uh, residents of Mauritius, which is an island east of Madagascar in the Indian Ocean, are calling for urgent international help to stop the economic and ecological damage from an oil spill that has already leaked 1,000 tons and could dump 2,500 more. Uh, local authorities have done what they can to plug this leak, but they're concerned that this tanker that ran aground could just split in half. Uh, the spill has already devastated local wildlife, the local economy, the local food supply. The ship is Japanese. Japan said they're going to help with the operation, but locals are calling for a, a full-scale international response. Let's hope they get it. We just wanted to raise that because this sounds like a potential disaster. Yeah, and the kind of thing that um, you know is not front and center, <laughs> given all the other news in the world. But again, like this is another reason why you need like a functioning vehicle for collective action around the world, which mm -hmm. is missing in the absence of the U.S. playing that role, um, because you know these kinds of things can have devastating and long lasting ecological impacts. So good yeah. to raise it. And, and the kind of thing that I'd like to see the U.S. again, if there's a change administration, would take the lead on uh, in the response to this kind of thing. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen under Trump. Uh, let's turn to Zimbabwe for a second, because people in Zimbabwe have been protesting human rights abuses in their country by posting images with the hashtag Zimbabwean Lives Matter. So this social media campaign is calling out police brutality, political oppression, uh, the unfair arrest of protesters, corruption, economic mismanagement, a whole lot of stuff. For well over a year, uh, security forces loyal to Zimbabwe's president, Emerson Managawa, uh, have been arresting protesters, raping women, torturing prisoners. Um, Managawa came to power in 2017 after a military coup against longtime dictator Robert Mugabe. People were very happy to see Mugabe go. For a while, there was a hope of a new democratic future for Zimbabwe. Uh, but Managawa seems to have fallen back into Mugabe's old ways. Um, there was a weird failed assassination attempt uh, on Managawa's life in 2018, I believe. So, Ben, uh, you know, I, I've noticed this campaign online. I wanted to lift it up here on the show. Are there international institutions that you think, like similar to our previous topic about Mauritius, that should be calling out this repression, that should be supporting this protest movement? Like, what are the best way to support folks who are doing this, like, do-it-yourself human rights campaign? Well, I think that the first thing is I'm glad we're talking about it in part because, you know, a lot of times in the U.S. and in the West, like, you know, Belarus gets a lot of attention, you know, but Zimbabwe doesn't, you know, like if it's, you know, movements in Europe, right, uh, with largely white people, like it, it sometimes gets more attention than what happens in Africa um, or, you know, in Southeast Asia, for instance. And what's so distressing here is like, you're right, like you thought maybe a window of opportunity opened after Mugabe and clearly that didn't happen. Um, in terms of what should happen, uh, you know, first of all, I think just, I do think that in this kind of new world that we're in, where there's kind of a global mobilization happening of people who want democracy and human rights, that it is useful that this draw international support and that there's a sense of solidarity and that mm -hmm. that's expressed online and that's expressed in the attention people pay to things. It gives... I've talked to activists in these places like they do take comfort and, and motivation from the fact that the world sees them and that people mm -hmm. are seeing what they're trying to do and that, and, and that people are trying to help them get their messages out or their images out. I think closer to policy, you know, I wish that, you know, that the, the neighborhood cared more about this. You know, South Africa, for instance, which that prides itself on democracy, like you know, has been very bad in speaking out on behalf of human rights often in in, in Zimbabwe. I, I, I'd like to see other African nations that, that have moved more in the direction of democracy 
um, raising their voice in addition to the U.S. And this is also a case where you'd want to see international bodies like the Human Rights Council at the United Nations that the U.S. is no longer on because of Trump, you know, raising these types of issues. Because what you want to get to a place is where there's civic activism, there's a global civil society that's supporting protests, that there's regional infrastructure or regional actors. Uh, so in the case of, you know, Southern Africa, South Africa, Botswana, other you know countries that, that can raise a, a voice, and that there's multilateral entities like uh, like like the UN system, or you know countries like in Europe, the EU and others who have trading relationships with Zimbabwe, you know, raising their voice and trying mm-hmm. to exert some leverage here. It takes kind of an all of the above approach here. Um, and and look, if it has to start with hashtags, it has to start with hashtags. Yeah. Well, good for the people who've been posting these images, these hashtags. Everyone should do their best to amplify them because it's uh, it's a courageous thing to do. Um, Ben, this next story will sound familiar to you. A a volcano in Indonesia called Mount Sinabung started erupting Saturday after a year of being dormant. So volcanic materials from this eruption uh, reached heights of 16,400 feet. They dumped inches of ash on local villages. Uh, Hopefully, hopefully, most people are safe. Uh, NBC reported that like 30,000 people have left the area in recent years because of the volcano and these eruptions. But Ben, listeners might hear this and think like, Okay, volcanoes are cool. Uh, like, why is this on a global news podcast? Well, that's because in 2010, uh, we had an Obama foreign trip to Asia, including to Jakarta, Indonesia, and that was impacted by a similar volcanic eruption in Indonesia. We ha- we were talking about canceling the trip for a while. We ultimately, I think, cut it short because surprise, surprise, you can't fly through volcanic ash. But it's just it's a reminder how like unbelievably powerful these volcanoes are and how they can have global implications if there's a major eruption. Yeah, no, we had to hightail it out of Indonesia um, to, to avoid the volcano. And yeah, no, I think these are, I mean, 2020 is a hell of a year, right? You know, we've got, we had like <laughs> COVID and the plague of locusts and volcanoes erupting and oil spills. Um, uh, and, and it, you know, it's a, it's a reminder that, that the earth has the final say on a lot of things. Sure does. But again, like in Indonesia, the linchpin of Southeast Asia, um, you know, key key member of the the major regional organization there, ASEAN, and a country that doesn't get, I think, the the attention from the United States uh, and the world that it should, given its size and importance. Um, you you don't want to see the humanitarian suffering, and you don't want to see any sense of destabilization because of natural disasters. So it's it is worth worth watching, and you know, a reminder that you know you can control a lot of things. Um, yeah. you can't really control the volcano. No, no, you cannot. Uh, Not even Joe versus. Uh, First COVID (laughs) mention of the day for me. On Tuesday, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced the approval of a coronavirus vaccine. Uh, Putin declared it a world first uh, and said that one of his own daughters had taken the vaccine. It's called Sputnik V. Uh, It has not gone through phase three trials, which are the trials where thousands of people get a vaccine to make sure it doesn't kill you. Very cool for Vlad's daughter to be a guinea pig. Russia has released no data about this alleged vaccine. Ben, I'm a firm believer in science and vaccinations, but there is literally no way in hell you could convince me to take a rushed Russian vaccine. Like joking aside, this is pretty serious because we need people globally to trust and take an eventual coronavirus yes. vaccine, right? Yes. Because yeah. look, there's a lot of people yeah. who are immune deficient or for many reasons won't be able to take vaccines. And if they're a bunch of assholes who refuse to take them because they watched Plandemic and they walk around with asymptomatic spread, yeah, yeah. they could kill people uh, who are unable to take it. So um, 
Look, fortunately, uh, a lot of other countries and companies have vaccines in phase three trials. It's good news for us because I would rather go to a chicken pox party in Orange County than take Vladimir's <laughs> rushed bullshit. Yeah. I mean, it just, just shows like th- this shows you the extent to which like Putin is kind of a just a troll of the world, you know, like uh, oh, pop up, got a vaccine called Sputnik, you know, no data. <laughs> but y- you made the key point here, which is that like, I'm very nervous that there's going to be competing vaccines and disinformation about vaccines. And if, if say the Chinese develop the vaccine first that, you know, others will want to say they have their own vaccine or vice versa. And, and what we need is an incredibly disciplined, organized and coordinated scaling up of the vaccine that works no matter where it comes from. And then the dissemination of that vaccine globally, because if you're not eradicating the disease globally, like you're not really eradicating it. And, this is a reminder of how difficult that's going to be because, mm-hmm. you know, all, you know, I'm waiting for the Duterte vaccine or the Erdogan vaccine, <laughs> right? Or the Bolsonaro vaccine. Like, a, is this going to be the trend now, Putin yeah. trend setting? Like, and, and that, like, let's just, again, like we've learned one thing, let the science and the data tell us what works and just do what it tells us to do rather than listening to some leader just declaring victory on this. Yeah. Until then, smoke your hydroxychloroquine. Uh, yeah. Ben, we, we've somehow accidentally happened upon a series here, which is called Ambassadors Gone Wild. And I, I have another edition that I'm very excited about, although it's a little less funny, but hopefully this asshole will never get the job. So Trump nominated a retired army colonel named Douglas McGregor to be his ambassador to Germany. Very important job, by the way. He used to be held by a Twitter troll named Rick Grinnell. McGregor is, he's a decorated combat veteran turned Fox News fixture, which is how you get the job these days. Here are just a few of the terrible things he has said. Uh, He said Muslim migrants are going to Europe, quote, with the goal of eventually turning Europe into an Islamic state. He called for martial law at the U.S.-Mexico border and said that we should shoot to kill people there if necessary. He went on RT, which is the Russian propaganda network, to say that Eastern Ukrainians are Russians, uh, which the U.S. and the EU vociferously disagree with, uh, but Russia loves. Um, He criticized German culture for wanting to atone for the sins of Nazi Germany. He said that was stupid, Mm. which is, boy, I don't even know how to unpack. So (laughs) there's so much more. Uh, I I do think what's notable, Ben, is like, Early on, right, that you would have these uh, the occasional nominee, they'd get picked, people would start like Googling them and vetting them. And I think the administration would learn about crazy views like this and be embarrassed and maybe dump them. Now I think this guy got picked because of these terrible views. There's no way around it anymore. I mean, like Germany is one of the most important countries in the world. And like, can you imagine what like Angela Merkel thought when she got the news that this fucking lunatic was being selected as ambassador right like which just some crazy conspiracy set of views and 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 you know friendly to, to i mean literally the u.s german relationship is meant to stand up to like russian invasions of of, of western countries like ukraine uh the whole project was supposed to be about the germans rejecting their nazi past not having a problem with them doing that you know and and so i like we see this as like comic in a way because it is to some extent in a dark way. Yeah. But imagine what it's like to, to Germany. Like, w- like what a sign of disrespect that like this lunatics like this nominated. And the thing that worries me is that like it Trump 
like some of these people are popping up and we're thinking, well, the election's in a few months. Like, what if he wins? Like, yeah, no. these people are going to be running the whole government if he wins. All these lunatics that we've been talking about um, are going to be in charge. So, the, again, the stakes are really high here. I guess, what's it called? Agre Mont? I guess Merkel doesn't have to accept him, but like, is that she a shouldn't. you really want to pick? I don't know. I don't know what you do. I would. I mean, it's what's the point? It's not like Trump, you know, it has, it shows any respect for her or for Germany. That's true. Like, I mean, just... Like, like, there's no reason to, like, let these people in. Yeah, let the DCM handle it. Um, okay, last thing, Ben. So apparently Trump today did an interview with his favorite uh, bootlicker slash uh, meet the press fixture, Hugh Hewitt. Uh, so I guess Hugh on this radio show asked uh, Trump about football. I guess I presumably it's a conversation about whether the college football season should start this year because the, the White House is now pushing this really hard because I, I don't know, whatever. But um, Trump said the following about Patriots coach Bill Belichick, quote, if I ever had a military battle, I'd call up Belichick and say, what do you think? What do you think? Give me a couple ideas. He'd be as good as any general out there, end quote. So first of all, Don, uh, you've had a military battle. I think there's an ongoing war in Afghanistan you might want to look into. Second, uh, as a Patriots fan, I've been known to often say, in Bill we trust. But I do not think that his knowledge of like the 3-4 defense is going to help against the Taliban. Like Rob Gronkowski, tough to cover, less so if you have a gun. What are you talking about, man? What are you talking about? I mean, I can't, well, can't believe we're here, you know, like in year four, the, you know, and the guys like Hugh Hewitt, I mean, like to take a detour, like this guy has trolled me for years, right? And and Susan Rice and all of us who are in the Obama administration as a bunch of incompetent amateurs, right? And his, his mm-hmm. whole thing with me is like, oh, I'm such an amateur. I was too young. And meanwhile, he's slobbering and salivating all over a president who, who's talking about like outsourcing his fucking foreign policy and his war policy to like a football coach, you know, <laughs> like I mean, what a bunch of bullshit, you know, like why? Yeah. And yet people take this guy seriously, like, you know, chin stroking, like, oh yeah, Hugh Hewitt is one of the, the re- Republicans who should go and meet the press and be listened to and taken seriously. Like, give me a break. I do want to say, Tommy, like I, and I, I feel I can say this cause I revisited the ownership of my teams, the Patriots, man, like Tom Brady, Belichick, like Robert Kraft and in, in the massage parlor. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. Like I, I, does it affect your view of those championships? I guess, I guess you have to separate sports and, and stuff from politics and just root for your team. I know, but, but, but it sucks that these guys keep coming up. Uh, you wish it was like Greg Popovich or something, you know? Oh, yeah. Look, I mean, I also have Kurt Schilling, who was oh, a, yeah. a hero for the Red Sox when he pitched through the the bloody sock game. And now he is like the most unhinged manga guy possible on Twitter. Yeah, look, I don't love it, but I do absolutely compartmentalize my life or else I would get through it. But just back to Hugh Hewitt quick, though, just like the thing about Hugh is the peak of his career was working for Richard Nixon. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then he just like attacked everybody for a while. And now his son works at the State Department. Right. He he's a he works for Mike Pompeo and Hugh Hewitt interviewed Mike Pompeo at the Nixon Library, where Pompeo basically uh laid out a strategy that attacked everything Nixon ever stood for when it came to China. And 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 you know, Hugh Hewitt is like, Thank you, sir, may I have another? And he yeah. looks past the fact that Trump is cool with putting Uyghurs in concentration camps and letting Hong Kong's democracy get crushed. Like he's just it's a morally bankrupt thing. It annoys the fuck out of me that Chuck Todd allows that guy yeah. on his show. It makes meet the press unwatchable. And like I like Chuck as a host, I like him as a person, but it embarrasses the show, it embarrasses the network to have Hugh Hewitt on there. He's yeah. a blatant conflict of interest and he is a hack. He's a hack. 
we've learned who he is. And this is why this matters, right? You know, bomb throwing, critic of Obama, fine. Like, I didn't like it. He was particularly <laughs> mean about me. Like, don't go down the same rabbit hole of, of figuring out just, just how obsessed this guy was with me because it was weird for a while. But now we've seen who he is, right? He's fully hook, line, and sinker, bought onto the Trump project. If Joe Biden wins, you can bet that this guy is going to be trying to rehabilitate himself as some thoughtful conservative voice. Totally. And it will be a very interesting litmus test as to whether or not Washington just re, you know, reopens its arms like to, to, to people like this who've gone along with the project one million percent. And will I guarantee you, if Trump loses, he'll be seeking to reposition himself as some thoughtful conservative who had some issues with what Trump was doing. No, no, mm. we 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 see who he is, you know, yep. and, and like we don't have to we don't have to like out of some devotion to a sense of balance with people who are full of shit, like uh, give them huge platforms. The one thing I was going to say, Tommy, just make you feel better. Mm-hmm. Daryl Strawberry <laughs> is apparently like a Republican. Really? Like I'm a Met, you know, Met fan. He's like my last championship was 1986 Mets, and I was shocked that like Straw is like apparently like a Trump guy. So it's mm. not just not just the I'm doing the same compartmentalization you are, man. You know, like I give people a lot of leeway for their own personal political views. It's like when people start, you know, using their platform or brand or money to like, you know promote a demagogue, that's when I get a little bit pissed off. So I think like Tom Brady having the dumb MAGA hat in his locker room, it annoyed me, but I think it was kind of overstated. Like I think there are buddies back in the day when he was some just doofus on The Apprentice, but I don't know. Hopefully the guys figured it out by now. But uh, that's enough of our uh, uh, now almost weekly sports section of the show, which frankly I enjoy. But when we come back, uh, we are going to have my interview with the Washington Post Beirut Bureau Chief Liz Sly. Do not skip that. Uh, it's an incredible story about it, what it was like being in Beirut during that horrifying explosion, all the challenges Beirut has had for decades politically, and what you can do to help. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. I am thrilled to be joined today by the Washington Post Beirut Bureau Chief, Liz Sly. Liz, thank you so much for making time for us after this just horrible week. Well, thank you for having me. So I'm sure listeners know this, but last week there was this massive explosion that rocked Beirut when 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate that had just been sitting around unprotected in a warehouse by the port for years uh, detonated. Liz, I saw the video you tweeted of your apartment and the destruction and just the unbelievable amount of glass and rubble across Lebanon. So, you know, my first question is honestly just how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. It's been an extremely exhausting week, as you can imagine, because not only um, were we sort of jolted out of our wits by this thing, we've had to be working around the clock trying to cover it. And in some ways, that's a good thing because you don't have too much time to sit around thinking about what happened to you. And on the other hand, I'm feeling extremely like I've been running a marathon for the past week. 
Yeah. I mean, at the risk of asking too personal a question, are you able to stay in your home or work out of your home? Or like, what are people doing to manage? No, no, the home is, un the building is uninhabitable at the moment. I've moved to a friend's apartment on another side of town, a, the side of town that wasn't really affected very badly. Mm -hmm. We're um, several miles away. But the further you get from the center of the blast, the less and less the damage becomes. But even what's extraordinary is that there is even damage how far where I am now, the building across the street, directly across the street, lost all its windows. My friend's building did not. She's wow. fine. Um, although the cat hasn't been normal for days now. Oh, that's so sad. Um, so like you mentioned, I mean, there are reports of potentially hundreds dead from the blast, thousands injured. I've seen figures as high as 250,000 people who may have been pushed out of their homes. Is the government or any other entity helping people get treatment or shelter? Or are they stepping in? The government is almost nowhere to be seen. What we have seen is some extraordinary scenes of the civil society, the ordinary Lebanese coming together to form teams of young people who go into people's apartments. They've cleaned the streets of glass. They've gone into the apartments, swept up the glass in people's apartments. People who go home to retrieve possessions find that apartments have been cleaned. They've scrubbed the blood off the walls. Already, the awfulness of the scene in the immediate aftermath of that blast has, has become a lot more palatable and a lot more easy to deal with. Um, but the government has done absolutely nothing. What this explosion has done is it has exposed the hollowness of the um, Lebanese state, the empty shell that's a figment of a state that just doesn't really have capacity, it doesn't have ability, it doesn't have compassion, it doesn't have institutions or at the moment any money to deal with this problem. Yeah. I mean, speaking of doing nothing, there's reports this morning that Lebanese security officials warned the government about this ammonia nitrate as recently as July. And I'm sure that was uh, by no means the first. I mean, the other really dire humanitarian warning that I'm seeing has to do with Lebanon's port. Uh, the head of the UN Food Agency said he's concerned that Lebanon could run out of bread in just weeks because 85% of the grain comes through that now destroyed port and those silos that are there. How concerned are people about potential food shortages? And is anything being done to help maybe by the international community? People are rushing food in. Of course, it, I think it's a bit early to tell what the immediate loss of capacity at the Beirut port is going to do for the country's long-term ability to secure enough food. What struck me as just as interesting about this port situation is that Lebanon is supposed to maintain a three to four month supply of food stocks of grain storage as most countries do, uh, an emergency reserve of, of grain in, in case of some unforeseen disaster. So the, um, the Minister of Agriculture was actually um, boasting that it's okay that this grain silo got blown up because it wasn't full. They only had 15,000 tons of a capacity of 14,000 wow. tons, which was only enough to last the country for two weeks. And um, this is apparently a good thing because they only lost two weeks of food, of grain. Wow, that is, oof. And there is a port at Tripoli and people can bring food in. But this country was already, as, as you know, in a dire state of crisis. I could not believe how dreadful things were before this explosion happened. It's really just hard to see how this country picks up from this at all. Yeah, I mean, you alluded to this earlier. You know, I, I've really been struck by the images, many of them shared by you on Twitter, of 
ordinary people, some you know badly wounded themselves, cleaning up the streets of Beirut, and there's just no government help to be seen. I was also struck by the the massive protests, uh, and unfortunately, those protesters were met by government security forces who were wielding tear gas, rubber bullets, other weapons. Um, the entire government resigned on Monday evening. Do you think that's going to go far enough to address the rage uh, in the wake of this explosion? No, not at all. It doesn't make any difference at all. One thing I've learned in the 13 years I've lived here is that government makes no difference at all. And I have this slight, only half serious joke, um, but it is half serious, that the more peaceful and stable times we've had, had in Lebanon are when we don't have a government. It takes Lebanese months, if not years, to form governments because they all argue with each other so much. The attempt to form a government brings out sectarian and religious community differences in a really acute and dangerous way that puts everybody on edge. And government is ineffective one way or the other. Um, what this does do is it means that the guys who are there now stay indefinitely while a new government is formed. But that for a new government to be formed under the current rules and processes means that there has to be a consensus among all the existing politicians and community groups. Now, that's precisely the system way of operating that has brought this country to its knees and which the protesters want to see abolished and not just a shift in the government, but a completely new system, a revolution, a total turnover. And that's just a long way from happening. Yeah, I mean, you're alluding to the fact that, you know, Lebanon was in an economic crisis, a political crisis long before this explosion. Can you just give listeners a bit of a sense of of that history and how it came to be that sectarianism and corruption and these war, warring factions have just completely hamstrung uh, the political system, the economy and hurt the Lebanese people so much? Well, you can go back to 1942 when the departing French colonialists created a system that divided positions in the government, the top positions in government, along sectarian lines. So the president would be a Christian, the prime minister would be a Sunni, and the speaker of parliament would be a Shia. Mm -hmm. That is not exactly written down, but what it's done in a de facto kind of way is spawn a system where even the security guards who, who man an X-ray machine at Beirut airport have to be divided up amongst the sects. This has created a system where appointments are not made on merit. They're not made on the best qualified candidate. They're made according to whether or not enough people from each sector represent it. And what this has done is empower the very already powerful sectarian leaders who lead these communities to distribute these jobs as if they were sort of candies or rewards to people who follow them. So many people in this country owe their livelihoods to the benevolent um, dispensation of jobs and patronage of these key powerful families. And those families are the same ones who fought a civil war amongst each other. Since the civil war, they've all gone into government together and kind of colluded, if you like, while remaining rivals of each other in um, sucking dry the resources, the income of this country mm -hmm. to an extent that nobody really realized until this year, they have actually milked dry and shared among them the entire banking deposits of the country, which have now vanished. Unbelievable. 
I mean, you mentioned the sort of French colonial history. I saw that President uh, Macron of France visited and that France and the UN are planning to lead an international donor conference that so far has pledged $300 million, I believe, in humanitarian assistance. Uh, Trump has said he'll contribute in some way, but not not an amount. Are there estimates of, of what's needed to solve the, the short term and then the long term uh, reconstruction challenge in Lebanon? I think it's way too early to tell that. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a kind of outpouring of generosity towards this country at the moment, but whether it's all going in the right direction or not, I mean, everybody's been blown up. You know, officers have been blown up. The UN had 27 people injured. Mm -hmm. The NGOs who know what's going on have people injured, wrecked properties. Way too early to put any estimates on this. Yeah. But yeah. the total amount of damage they said in the first few days was three to five billion, and now they're saying it's like ten to fifteen billion. Wow! I don't know, but um, it's really clear that the money to rebuild this country is not going to materialize. Three hundred million is a drop in the bucket. For example, you can't withdraw money from your bank account at the moment, and the banks have kind of quite cleverly disguised the fact that they've lost everybody's money because it's gone with their schemes and financial engineering, which hid where the money was going. Um, So the fact that there isn't any money in the banking system has been quite cleverly masked by the fact that everybody since October has been severely restricted in the amounts they may withdraw from their own bank accounts. A lot of Lebanese weren't poor. People would talk about having $80,000, $100,000 in the bank, that kind of thing. They can't access that money. And the reason they can't is because it doesn't exist and the banks have put restrictions on that. God. Now they need that money to rebuild their homes and they can't take it out of the banks. Right. So they're not going to be able to rebuild. And you realize, of course, what that leads to. Everybody says, well, I'm not sticking around to rebuild in this country. Everybody wants to leave. Yeah, I mean, how concerned do you think Lebanon's neighbors are about you know the state collapsing and that leading to, to massive refugee flows out of the country? I mean, I, I saw a statistic where I believe one in six people in Lebanon currently are actually refugees, mostly from Syria. That seems destabilizing in and of itself. Yes, the Lebanese have no exit. Somebody was saying to me today, we are a landlocked country and our only exit is the sea, which doesn't totally make sense. But all around to the north and to the east is Syria. I mean, lots of Lebanese wouldn't be welcome in Syria Mm -hmm. because there's a large segment of the population that has supported the revolution against Bashar al-Assad. And Syria is in a worse state than Lebanon. And to the south is Israel, and Lebanon and Israel have been in a state of war since 1948. Mm -hmm. And they're still in a state of war. And that border was jumping and hopping with tensions even before this explosion went off. I mean, you can't cross that border. You just can't. So the only exit they have is to get on a plane and go to a foreign country. Our president, uh, Donald Trump, immediately decided to call this blast an attack uh, he was wrong, as, as far as we know. Did, did that even register with people? Did it cause confusion? No, because everybody already believed there was an attack. When you have an explosion like that, there was no question in my mind in the first like 30 minutes to an hour that we were under Israeli attack because tensions on the border had been increasing. I've been in two suicide bombings in Baghdad. I was in the building that was directly targeted and it kind of fell down around me. It felt like that. We all, everybody in Beirut believed there was an, a direct attack on their house at that minute. But what it actually was, was such a huge explosion in one place that everybody had an attack on their building. It, 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 we were all experiencing the same thing. 
but a lot of people hadn't registered that there was a fire at the port that suddenly took off. If you didn't have a view of the port, you didn't know that. Everybody heard this roar before the explosion. I put quite a lot on Twitter about this. I heard a roar. It was the sound of aircraft. I was 100% sure. I have been through Israeli bombings here, the 2006 war, and um, Israeli raids in Beirut in the 80s as well, and the ISIS war in Syria and Iraq. This was warplanes flying over my house, I was sure. I ran onto the balcony to look for them. I couldn't see any warplanes. I turned around to go back off the balcony, and whoosh, boom, the, the explosion hit. And I was extremely lucky, because if I'd been just on the other side of the glass, it all would have blown into me. But I was just parallel with the glass, and we all flew into the room together. Um, I believed we were under Israeli attack. And sort of about an hour later, somebody played me a video of the attack, and I began to realize what had happened, and that it wasn't an Israeli attack. But still, people didn't know why this whole thing had gone off in the first place. So yes, for that first night, many, many people in Beirut believed this was an Israeli attack or something to do with an Israeli attack, because that's what's caused so much of war in Lebanon in the past as well. Now, I am now convinced by the videos I've seen and the scientific explanations I've heard that that roar I heard, which was exactly like the roar of warplanes flying very low over your head, was actually some kind of physical effect of the air being sucked in and the explosion taking off. And it's very clear from the videos. Yeah. And you've posted a lot of really helpful video to help people reconstruct what happened, including some very high definition 4K video that shows you, a, you know, slow motion, the just unfolding of the shockwave, which, you know, it brings me to my last question. But first, I just want to say thank you again for talking to us today. And and, and thank you for your incredibly uh, brave reporting in dangerous situations. It, it reminds me all over again why it's disgusting when Trump uh, attacks the fake news media because they're the people out there literally risking their lives. Um, but last question for you is, you know, I think a lot of listeners uh, are hearing you talk. They will want to do something to help the people of Lebanon to donate somewhere to contribute. Are there organizations you think are, are especially good that people should support? Well, I really would have to just say the Red Cross of Lebanon they are the heroes of this. Um, they were the heroes of the civil war in the 80s. They crossed front lines. They picked people up under whatever circumstances. They've been picking people up with coronavirus. They've been going out there with very little in the way of protective gear and picking up the coronavirus victims and taking them off to hospital. And they are out there on the streets. They know what they're doing and they are not connected to the government and there are lots of organizations here doing good work. I don't have the means to kind of gather them, but the Red Cross of Lebanon are heroes. Great. That's a great place to steer donations, a great piece of advice. Uh, Lislai, thank you again uh, for your amazing reporting, for talking to us. Everyone should follow you on Twitter and read your columns uh, in your reporting at the Washington Post because it is excellent, excellent stuff. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks to Liz Live for coming on the show. Uh, thanks to Bill Belichick for you know diagramming some plays for us uh, yeah. in terms of the forthcoming invasion <laughs> of Iran. We really appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs> Bye, guys. Posse of the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. Posse of the World is mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our amazing digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes, videos every week. 